The Grim Drive podcast explores mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. Pro athletes come forward more and more with stories about their mental health journey, what they have endured, and how they manage to push through, reflecting a mental health stigma that continues to be reduced. Pro athletes also leverage mindset to achieve peak performance, as well as representing and often driving elements of popular culture through the use of social media, technology, and personal branding. This places athletes front and center as role models for people of all ages, giving them a platform to reach many and deliver important information, including information about mental health. Welcome to the Grim Dive Podcast, where we explore mental health through the lens of professional sports and athletes. Today, we're going to be discussing Jackie Mack and mental health and sports media. Before we get to that, we got a couple uh, great announcements about the Grim Drive Podcast and your your two hosts of the Grim Drive Podcast. So, one, Dimitri, I don't know if we told you this, but we uh, finally got to 100 subscribers on YouTube. Thank you very much. Right, right. Only took made us it. like harassing our entire network <laughs> our entire on social media and maybe yeah. our family and friends. But you know Hate what? Us. I will take it. Hate okay. Us, yeah. Out of that 100, I don't know how many are actual organic fans. Right. Doesn't matter to Doesn't me. Doesn't matter. Right? I'll take it because with 100 subscribers, we've been begging you listeners out there to do this so that we could get our custom URL on YouTube. It's going to make copy pasting so much easier. So much easier. Um, you know, character <laughs> limits make that tough. So that's going to uh, help us. I think it's going to help us. You know, reach more people, hopefully. So yeah. that's great news. The second uh, part of great news is that we uh, we had a little uh, radio spot. Yeah. Um, we were on the Radio Boston show on NPR uh, with Tiziana Deering, where we were discussing the podcast, the Grim Drive podcast. We we're talking about um, you know why we think it's important to try to shine a light on mental health through the mm-hmm. lens of sports. Uh, I thought it went pretty well, except for my Wi-Fi cutting out briefly <laughs> in the beginning. Uh, COVID. Yeah. To end. Yeah. Uh, so we can just do in-person things normally. What did you think about that? It was really exciting. Yeah. Uh, I thought the questions were that they have were really thoughtful. Um, and clearly she had done a lot of research in terms of like what was needed to be talked about. And mm-hmm. I think it was just a great platform. Um, and even from there, we, we got like lots of calls and pieces of people like coming from us. It's like, oh, wow, we heard you on NPR yeah. and that's really cool what you guys are doing. And so that's like what we're here to do. Yeah. Try to reach yeah. as many people as possible. So having more opportunities like that has been, it was great. I thought the conversation went well. Yeah. I mean, you tossing out and just like quitting on it was like a little problem, but it's all right. We'll forgive you for it. No, I just, recovered nicely. You did okay. recover nicely. It could have gone yeah. way worse. Way worse. Uh, but no, I thought it was, I, I thought it was really good to, I think for me also, it's good to know that there are people who were wanting to have the conversation. Yeah, I think yeah. that was a big, like one of the bigger, like non-content piece takeaway, but more of like the macro piece of like that this conversation is is important and there's people who are wanting to have it more. That was that was probably the coolest part that we were able to like have a platform and people were actually interested. Because yeah. like sometimes we're like talking at walls or talking to people like, okay, like you get the eye rolls yeah, to that. Yeah. But for people who are really interested in hearing about it, it was, it was a really cool experience. No, for sure. And I think we're, um, we thought it went really well and, you know, obviously our, our connection is intact with, with the people there at WBUR and we're hoping hopeful yeah. that we're going to be able to do more things there yep. because I think uh, it seemed like it went that well and mm-hmm. they'd like to have us back. That's been communicated to us, which is great. So yeah. I want to thank Tiziana Deering and Chris Satorik yeah. at at, uh, at the Radio Boston show with WBUR and, and NPR. Um, really appreciative of them giving us that opportunity to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want to thank, you know, CJPR. Yeah. Right? Uh, Christina and, and Jules at CJPR. They really helped us kind of coordinate that and get that set up. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, just another example of how you need a lot of help from different people to try to like reach, reach the most people and, and help yep. people ultimately. So we're really excited about that. Uh, the last saving the, the best for last here, Johnny. Oh boy. Um, Dimitri, John Cuna is now a published author. Wow. Yep. Oh, yeah, no joke, for real. Uh, John published a book called The Coaching Zone, The Next Level Leadership in Sports, along with uh, John Yeager, right? Yep. Um, so discuss, John. What do you think about <laughs> oh, that? Oh, boy. Uh, so it was years mm-hmm. of putting this all together. Um, and it's funny. I'll give you a little backstory of the whole of how it all came together. So when I was first even thinking about getting into this field in general, mm-hmm. um, I just started talking to everybody yeah. um, about it. And when I was sort of starting smart, and smart, yeah, start. right. Just yeah. trying to like gain knowledge yeah. from people who were doing it better than I was um, and who had been doing it for a while. And sports had always been something I wanted to do. And so wanting to like talk to people who had been doing that. And so I went back to my old college coach, um, coach Mangiacotti, who's, um, he's the best. Uh, maybe I'm biased, but he's the best. Um, and he's, he was at Wheaton when I, when I was running and then is now at Harvard. Mm-hmm. So I reached out to him and said like, Hey, do you know of anybody or has Harvard worked with people who like sports psychologists or people that do that? And he got me in touch with John. And so I just sent him a random email uh we connected and kind of hit it off and then a few years later this idea kind of spurred and um you know he had been thinking about writing a book and wanted my insights of like mm-hmm. more of the practical like coaching stuff and like techniques and strategies um and h- how i was able to incorporate some of the like mental health exercises and mental fitness exercises into my coaching because that's a big glaring gap in especially high school athletics mm-hmm. um and so we kind of I'd say probably like over two years, maybe three years in the making of writing this. And now finally here, I'm really, really excited about it. A little bit of, I'm going to, I'm not very comfortable with doing this, but it is still currently number one on Kindle bestseller for sports psychology. So it's doing all right. No big deal. (laughs) Um, But I think what set separates it from a lot of the other stuff is that it's really like a practical read. So it's more of like a template rather than like a textbook. Mm -hmm. So it sort of goes into different topics and pieces. And like you can, there might be chapters that are like, I'm good on that. But there's also, don't have to read the whole thing. I love books like that. So So, yeah, it's basically just like, you know, the the, the three big things that I was really excited about the book was when we started talking about like right feedback, right time, Mm -hmm. um, polarity management and purpose development. And like right feedback, right time. I think that a lot of times coaches, when there's either a bad performance or even a good performance, you go like right up to that athlete and be like, this is what happened. This Parents is what do this too. Parents all do it all the time. The time. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And, uh, <laughs> you know, if you're an athlete, I'm sure you can relate to this. If you've had a disappointing uh, performance, you're beating yourself up more than probably anybody else could. And mm-hmm. so getting feedback at that moment is probably not the most efficient yeah. and um, or the best time for that. And so as a coach, wanting to sort of learn when is the right time for my athletes, because maybe some athletes are like, I need it right then. Yep. Like I need to I need to absorb everything right now because in 10 minutes, I'm going to completely move on. And so I need it right now. And some are like, I need 10 minutes to like sit with this and then I'm ready to hear it. So that was a really cool piece and goes into a lot of like, very concrete exercises for that. And then polarity management is something that I think we've spoke about on this podcast before. This guy named Dr. Barry Johnson wrote the book on it. Um, and the best example I can sort of talk about is he uses the example when he's explaining it of like breathing. So inhaling and exhaling are two opposite things. You can't do them at the same time, but you need both to breathe. And it's about finding the balance between inhaling and exhaling that allow you to, to breathe. And so he, he comes up with lots of examples of what polarities exist for coaching. And one of them is like 
training the individual and training the team. Mm -hmm. You can't do both sort of like you you can't train the individual and then also be training the team. It's about the balance of how do you do both. Um, And you can't just focus on the team or just focus on the individual. So goes into like practical ways to manage to manage those things and then the most exciting part because this was the biggest part for me to write was about purpose development um and helping coaches understand the importance of teaching that to kids um and their athletes of how important it is to cultivate purpose um tapping into really what drives them exactly because ultimately it's going to make your job a heck of a lot easier and I always, when I was coaching, I always felt the most successful when I could like show up to a meet and didn't really have to do anything, right? Other than like timing yeah. or getting marks for jumps or things like that. It was because they knew what they were there for. They had a firm understanding of like what their purpose was and they were motivated to do that and they didn't need me. Mm-hmm. They were able to do those things for themselves. And that's kind of the one of the bigger takeaways from the book is like, yes, these are skills that are help that will be helpful for athletics, but it's much more, it's much more about what these skills are going to do for you post athletic life. Um, so I'm really excited that the book is out. I can't believe it's finally mm-hmm. here. It still feels a little bit surreal. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can go Amazon, really all those other places and, and download those pieces, write a review. If you're feeling so inclined, um, always happy to talk more about it, but um, really excited about, about the prospect. And the other cool thing, last thought is that like like I said a lot of it is about like coaching but it translates for lots of other different things organizations teams yeah. you know it doesn't necessarily have to be just for athletics my mm-hmm. my sister was talking about how she took it you know she was talking about how it helped her like in her parenting I was gonna so, say parents could, could absolutely benefit from this yeah. right so um, it, it's sort of like wide-ranged and um, far-reaching so I'm just really excited to be able to share it um, John's done it enormous amount of work on it um and helping to to put this all together i would not be able to do it without him so um he's been a huge huge asset he's been in the he's he's done work for harvard he's done work for culver he's really hooked up with uh, the boston cannons mm-hmm. um and does a lot of work with for their um for their coaching and their um their goalie camps he works with sean cork who's the coach for the boston cannons and does a lot of work with them in their camping and their training so um he's a really well-respected guy and i'm just honored to be able to sort of put my name next to his on something. No, it's fantastic. We're going to put a, a link to that in the show notes uh, for, for Amazon so people can access that book if they want to. Um, you know, what you touched on towards the end there also about like just the fact that it, it makes it easier if you coach in a certain way, it, it makes it easier on the athlete and the coach. Mm-hmm. I think it also makes it easier on the athlete when they're tied into purpose to be able to ride the swings of the results, right? You can, we can't. We talk about how we can't control results, right. right? We can control effort. We can control process. If you're tapped into your purpose, I feel like it's a, gr- a way to stay grounded, right? So that if things, if the results aren't what you're looking for, you're not going to ride that wave as low as you would if you're really just tied to results and not tied to the bigger purpose, the bigger picture, which I think is great. You talked about right feedback, right time. I mean, I think, you know, that that to me is like. I think it's it's not just important for athletes or important for coaches. It's important for parents as well. And I also think that, um, you know, that that relates to athletes, not just in terms of when they get the feedback, but also the coaching style that they need, right? And I think some athletes, like you said, need it right away. Some need it later. Some athletes need you to be up in their face and be aggressive in terms of like, you know, not dangerously, but aggressive in terms of the feedback you give them and they, they thrive on that. Others need you to kind of, you know, temper, temper the way you deliver it a little bit to understand them emotionally and be able to get on their level. Mm -hmm. Every athlete is different. Jackie Mack actually talks about this in one of her ringer appearances. She talks about, 
I think she mentioned, you know, how the 76ers might be a little bit more successful this year with Doc Rivers as the coach because he's someone who understands how to really change his coaching style depending on the player. Yeah. Um, referencing, I think Ben Simmons being someone who needs you to be in his face a little bit to kind of keep him motivated, mm-hmm. whereas Joel Embiid is not someone like that. You can kind of let him cook and do his thing. You do not need to be in his face. Right. He's going to do what he, what he does. But I think it kind of relates to, to that, um, to athletes in general, to coaching in general, but also to this episode. Um, so I think that's, you know, so I, yeah, I just wanted to cover that. So Let's see. When it comes to Jackie Mack, uh, let's do a quick bio real quick. She is an American uh, freelance sports journalist and NBA columnist for the sports website ESPN.com. Also works for The Ringer. Uh, I think she joined The Ringer, I want to say, in the past year. So she's on a couple different podcast episodes. She's on with the Bill Simmons podcast. I think Mm -hmm. she might be on the NBA, The Ringer NBA show, things like that. I mean, She's obviously someone who's been around for a long time and is great at what she does. Um, in 2010, she received the Kurt Gowdy Media Award from the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame, first woman ever, ever. to get that. Yeah. In February 2019, she was awarded the Penn uh, ESPN Lifetime Achievement Award for literary sports writing. She graduated from UNH where she played uh, basketball, which is D1, so yeah. obviously no joke. Yeah. Um, I think her, you know, her passion for, for basketball as a player certainly feeds into to, you know, her ability as a writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's originally from Westwood, Mass. So shout out to, uh, to, to the local. To the locals, area. right yeah, down the absolutely. street from where we are. Yep. So um, in terms of we try to always focus on, you know, whether it's an athlete or whoever we're covering uh, in terms of the, the, the person, the personality, we try to find a, a charity or a charitable organization that they support. I couldn't really find one directly. I mean, I know she's done a lot of work for yeah. a whole host of different charities and, and volunteering and things like that. But so since we couldn't find one, we just uh, we like to use uh, hashtag same here. It's it's same here global dot org. Uh, they focus on, you know, uh, global mental health awareness and reducing stigma and things along those lines. So we always like to shout out same here. So Jackie Mack, um, let's get into we're going to talk about, um, you know, when it comes to, I mean, the topic is mental health in, in sports media. Jackie Mack is our focus. So I think we're going to, when it comes to her, we're going to talk about the the five-part series she did in 2018 on ESPN. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're going to get into, you know, the, the sports media, mental health and sports media in general, in terms of the good things, the bad things, you know, what role they should have in, in that topic in general, stuff like that. So first, we're going to start with the, the, the five-part series she did. Part one, I'm just going to, you know, kind of preface this by going through the titles of the different parts. Part one was the courageous fight to fix the NBA's mental health problem. Part two was when making the NBA isn't a cure-all, mental health and black athletes. Part three is to medicate or not the thorny mental health issue in the NBA. Part four is yelled at, spit on, and insulted inside the life of an NBA ref. I have some thoughts on that one, <laughs> both from a fan and from a real person perspective. Yeah. And then the uh, part five, the last part, is Trey Young, Kevin Love, and the future of mental health in the NBA. So... I'll let you start. Do you have any takeaways about Jackie Mack in general or uh, with regard to those five parts? No, it was really cool to find out that she was like a Massachusetts uh, person. With that was that was kind of cool. Um, but in terms of like what my biggest takeaway from her is that she's really one of the only people that I that I could find that's really doing a lot of this type of work. There are, there are definitely other journalists who are doing more. And I would say especially within the last five years, there's been more. But she really... Uh, she feels like she's the spearhead for it mm-hmm. of like trying to really put some sh- shine some light on these types of things and really do good work. She, aside from the fact that she's just a phenomenal journalist and writer, um, I think that she has a really unique ability to hone in on like the the 
the most necessary conversations and topics. And if you go, I highly recommend going and watching the 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 five part series on YouTube. They're not very long, um, but she is like very talented at like getting into like the the nitty gritty of what needs to be talked mm-hmm. about. And you can tell by the people that are on, especially that first one with Kevin Love. It's just like pouring out of him, you know, of like all the stuff that, that that's going on. And, and she does a really great job holding that. And we'll get into some other journalists who maybe aren't as good at doing that. Um, but I think that because she's allowed and because she's good at what she does, the conversation's been more fluid um, and available. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, we'll get into we're going to get into the other people who don't have that same ability. But having people like her has helped the conversation of mental health in sports to even happen yeah. and occur. And so that was her ability to do that. And we'll go through the different places and the different the five um, takeaways. But that was that was that was sort of like jaw dropping for me when I was watching her sort of like do her magic when talking to these people and like covering these articles and things like that. I was yeah. like, wow, she has such a unique way of getting to like the root stuff in a way that feels approachable and not like over the top or that type of stuff. It was really, uh, it was impressive. Yeah. One might say she has the demeanor of a therapist. Yeah. A little bit. Uh, <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's why I align so much. Totally. Yeah. And there's some yeah. people that are able to, are like really fantastic <clears throat> at interviewing other people. Mm-hmm. Right? I think Oprah is someone that's obviously like at the top of, of that kind of game. Yeah. Bill Simmons is also someone at the ringer who's fantastic at knowing how to interview people. Um, you know, Joe Rogan is someone who can right. like the people that can, can not only get people to open up, but, are really well versed in different areas and know kind of where to take it. I think Jackie Mack obviously has that, and she's, I don't know how to describe. It. She's like part therapist, part mom, part journalistic genius. Like it's yeah. it's all three. And when you see her talking with someone or letting them talk, really, and guiding them in a way from from the interviewer kind of perspective, it really is like she's super skilled, and it makes you like you can see why people kind of open up. And she made a comment like I. I could always get people to tell me stuff that they wouldn't tell anybody else. <laughs> right. So this is like, yeah, from a, I mean, she started when you know, I, I still don't think it's all probably all that easy. I don't know from personal experience for obvious reasons, but being a female journalist in lar- you know largely or entirely male locker rooms dating back to what the seventies or eighties for her, yeah. I think eighties, um, that could not have been easy, right? So yeah. doing that period was I was sure was a huge challenge, but doing it as successfully as she's done and developing that kind of trust and getting those athletes to open up to her for a very long time mm-hmm. as something she's always been good at. And I mean, she, she seems to get the role that emotion plays in what drives people. That's what kind of stood out to me is, and she talks about that, like how it's not, she goes beyond the sport and even beyond like just the, the, the intricacies of one person. I think she gets into what, what you talk about purpose with your book and that purpose development. Yeah. I think she kind of taps into the emotion in the core of what's kind of going on in a person Ultimately, I think human beings are kind of emotional beings that think and oftentimes we're characterized as the opposite, like thinking beings that happen to have some emotions and it's Mm -hmm. really the reverse. And I think when you tap into someone's emotion, you really get what moves them and you can get them to open up about things. I know we we have to do that obviously in our work and Mm -hmm. it's uh, it's a struggle to challenge. Every person is a kind of a unique puzzle. Mm -hmm. I think she's super skilled at that. So that's I agree with you. That's definitely something that kind of stood out. Um, in terms of the five parts, any one of the five that you want to start with in terms of thoughts you had? I feel like the first part was all about Kevin Love and I feel like we've had, we've had pretty good conversations about that. I'd encourage people to sort of go back and, and and listen, um, to the first episode I think was right. was Kevin Love. So, well, that, that gives me a thought. It's just that all these sort of things 
keep intertwining. Yeah. I think the more episodes we do, we, we kind of keep finding these little nuances about this person was connected to this person and helped them open up about this. And mm-hmm. it was Jackie. I didn't know Jackie Mack. Like her question to him is kind of what seemed to originate his kind of journey. Right. I didn't know that at all. So no. um, I thought that was, yeah, absolutely great point. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, one of the ones that stood out to me was about medication. Um, totally. That was that was a really well written piece, um, and they one of the things that stood out was so Dr. Parham is the guy that the NBA union brought on as mm-hmm. sort of like to oversee mental health pieces, and and he one of the things he said was that um, you know medication treats the symptoms, not the real issues. Yeah, it stood out to me too, yeah. and that was a powerful thing to hear from a provider in that like overseeing something mm-hmm. because I've definitely worked with providers who are who don't think that. Um, and it was refreshing to hear like a person in that position who's like thinking about it in the right way. And it also made me think of like why I think a lot of times, especially with medication in our field, it's like, take this pill, things are fixed. And I see it of more like take this pill so that we can get to work. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that it's on the nice, real underlying on the real issues. stuff, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, yeah. the medication really is meant to allow you to come to a place where you can actually do the work, right? Mm-hmm. To stabilize brain, the chemistry, whatever it happens to be, stabilized so that you can actually access the things that yep. you're, you weren't able to beforehand. Mm-hmm. And so ha- seeing him, that statement was like really, really stood out to me. Um, and I think that having more, because people are going to look to him, he's respected in his field, and hopefully that starts to trickle down of the approach and more of the understanding because I, I have that conversation a lot with people who potentially are going to be going on to medication of, well, do I need to see you anymore? Or do we need to keep working together anymore? Mm-hmm. Like I'm taking this pill. Like am I good? Yeah. And having to have a conversation. Like, no, right? Like <laughs> no, not really. I wish. I, mean, it, I that, wish. Yeah. Right. And then you know, I think, I think that does speak to like the instant gratification that has become more sort of apparent in our culture of like, okay, I, I got to keep moving, so I'll just take this pill and everything's mm-hmm. going to be better. Um, and so you know, having him say that, he also must understand that like there's going to be some real work that has to be done, and that that work is the value and is the process and is actually what is going to strengthen you because that's the that's the work that's what that's what you know the pill just allows you to get to a place you can actually do that yeah it's it has to be sort of in conjunction and hearing him make that statement was like a comforting feeling of like oh okay like Mm -hmm. this guy's got a really good sense of what what to do and how to and how about and how to go about it totally and and even if the if the pill was guaranteed to like majority handle the issue sure i still find problems with that a little bit and i'll give an example like let's say Someone can, you know, you're, you're struggling, you're paying your bills, but you have goals and you're trying to kind of work your way up and develop good habits in life, develop a work ethic, things like that, especially when you're younger. Let's say you have a parent that just kind of gives you a million dollars, right? <laughs> Two million dollars, three million dollars, maybe. That seems good on the surface, right? Uh, and you see parents struggle with this a lot. Parents that are successful, they often, they say something like, I don't want my kid to struggle like I did. And in my, I, that a warning kind of flag goes off in my head when I hear that because what they what they often ignore, and it's not that you want your kid to struggle to the point where they're compromised health-wise. Right. But you also don't want to completely pave everything for them because the struggle is important. You need right. that. That's what that's what kind of develops, uh, you know, a foundation. It develops your work ethic. It develops sustainability for you in life so mm-hmm. that when life hits you, you're able to kind of recover gain strength and move on and move forward. Right. If everything is is paved out for you, including from a financial standpoint, right. it actually sets people up for some risk later on because yeah. they're they're not able to really recover when things don't go their way. So I think medication's not necessarily the same, but I think there there's very real value in doing the work to really get to the root of the issue. Mm-hmm. If a medication, if people believe that a medication is really just going to solve all their problems, 
they're they're missing the key point, which is that nothing is that easy, and you right. have to be able to put in the hard work because that's what's going to sustain you later on when things do dip a little bit, which they're yeah. naturally going to, right? Right. Life throws stressors at us. Absolutely. You bring, you bring up a good point about the, the, like, I don't want my kids to struggle like I did because that's the same thing. I hear that a lot. And I and I understand, as a parent, I understand, right? I get it. I get why, you, of course, you don't want your kids to struggle, right? Yeah. But then it's always, you know, I'll take that same comment and kind of flip it and be like, well, do you, do you attribute some of your success to your struggle, right? And then you can kind of get them to access of like, well, yeah, I had to work like a hundred hours a week and I had to learn what that felt like and I had to manage and I had to figure out how to time manage. I had to do all these different things because I was struggling and working so hard. And it's mm-hmm. like, well, do you think you picked up some lessons of why, you know, did you yeah. think those contributed to some of your success? Yeah. And you can kind of flip that whole paradigm. Cause I think that's one of those comments that like is just out there and mm-hmm. accepted. But mm-hmm. when you actually dissect it, there's some real problems to it. Um, and that's definitely one that I think is like regurgitated a lot with yeah. like the parents fear of like, Oh, I don't want my, kids to struggle and it's like well no you, you gotta let them struggle a little bit yeah. um or they're not gonna know how to because life is not just you know maybe there are some examples of people who never have to struggle and mm-hmm. i'm sure there are um but for the majority there's always going to be something that's going to come up and if you are never given opportunities to struggle you're not gonna know how to do it totally i think that i think the way i would describe it is like there's a and i've talked to parents about this is a key difference between not you know difference between wanting your kid to be safe yeah. and not wanting them to struggle. I think those are two very different things. Mm-hmm. We want kids to be safe, but we also want them to have the right type of struggle because it's going to set them up for success and happiness, which ultimately makes them safe, right? right. And I think right. When, when parents are really super concerned with, with removing all struggle, what they're really kind of guarding against is their own negative emotions. That's really what that's about. It's about their own fear about not wanting something bad to happen to their kid. And I think once they tap into that, they can realize, okay, that's much more about me than it is about mm-hmm. my kid's actual safety. Now that I know that, I can manage my own emotions, learn how to cope in an effective way, and balance out their safety versus their necessary struggle. Yeah. And try to balance. I mean, it's it's an imperfect balance. No, yeah. It's not always possible to get both. And but. it's super hard. It's like counterintuitive for a parent totally. to tell Absolutely. a parent, like, don't care for your kid who's struggling, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, no, that's my job as a parent is to help my kid in any way that I possibly can. And the hard part of that conversation is like, well, you know what? The best thing you can do to help is to allow a little bit of struggle. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a very uncomfortable feeling for, for parents to sit in. Like you hold your baby for the first time, it's crying. What do I got to do to help this baby stop crying, right? It's like, it's just programmed yep. and you have to sort of like deprogram that and mm-hmm. like, and like work to how am I, how am I actually, how are these actually supporting my, my kids or, or are they actually supporting my kids? Absolutely. Absolutely. So you, you bring up that part three, that the medication uh, part of this really was the one that kind of stood out the most to me as well. And mm-hmm. that quote in particular, that often meds treat symptoms, not the real issue definitely stood out. There were a couple of things along those lines. I think under the heading of medication, uh, you know, the topic of medication, I would also put, you know, self-medicating. And I think that includes alcohol and, and marijuana or cannabis. And I think, you know, we know how problematic alcohol is. And Marcus Morris, actually, who was referenced in part two, two. but also in part three, talked about how until he got connected with a psychologist um, through some, I forget the name, but uh, through somebody, uh, through I think through the Celtics organization in the greater Boston area, um, it was a, a female psychologist. He, before he got connected to her, he admits to using marijuana to try to deal with his depression. And then someone else uh, unsuccessfully, and once he started working with her, he realized that was not going to solve the problem and not going to get to the real root of the issue. So mm-hmm. I think this medications and, you know, alcohol, marijuana really treat the surface thing that gets you by on a day-to-day basis, especially marijuana. There was someone who, I think, I don't know if Doc Rivers or someone else in that part three who referenced how 
I think it was John Lucas, Lucas right, who is a, yeah. a very uh, well-known, I mean, he's a basketball player, basketball coach in the NBA, but also is, is well-known as kind of a, a mentor guru these days in the last 10 years, especially. Mm-hmm. He's someone who referenced how, you know, marijuana is is tricky because it's going to it's going to help you get through day to day, but the negative effects don't show up immediately. And I've definitely seen that with people where it's like it kind of tricks you into thinking it's okay to keep using that because mm-hmm. it, 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 you know, staves off major issues from happening on one, one given day, but then s- issues slowly start to form. And he references how it kind of saps your drive and motivation and that kind of stuff. So yeah. I think it, it's important because once he, once Marcus Morris got connected to treatment, he realized that, oh, that's, I got to do something else to really <laughs> handle the root. Yeah. That's just kind of getting me through, right? Um, yeah. And then the other thing, Doc Rivers referenced ADHD. I think how him and Danny Ainge were both kind of diagnosed within the Celtics organization <laughs> yeah. as having ADHD. And it, yeah. it kind of made me laugh because it, it, I think, you know, we've, we obviously have done a lot of work with ADHD and we know how, you know, how, uh, you know, intelligent people with ADHD are and how high performing they tend to be. Um, and it just keep, this really hit home for me. I think it was already hitting home, but it's, it's starting to sink in even more. The how, you know, neurodiversity and even sometimes certain mental health issues kind of set some of these athletes up to be like super successful from the athletic perspective that's something i never really knew going into this podcast was that was how often that happens i think which is you know obviously a dangerous thing on the flip side of that and on Mm -hmm. the back end especially when they retire which we've discussed yeah but kind of cool that neurodiversity um in different ways really aids them as an athlete and i I find that that's cool because we're obviously strengths-based strengths-focused and it's easy to just paint mental health or mental illness or things like that as all bad, but there are some things that actually help them in certain ways, and it's about finding that balance. I think. Yeah, I think you make a, it's a great point. I, I think, especially though, like I think we've had conversations about this too of like mental health seeing as like if you have it, it's bad, right? Yeah. Like mental illness is bad, right? And so like I, I talk about this with my clients all the time. Like I don't really ADHD. Like I have a hard time seeing it as like a disorder. I know it's yeah. called like a, you know deficit de- and deficit disorder. disorder yeah, I hate right? Both those. right. I don't I don't see it as a deficit, and I don't see it as a disorder. I think it it certainly contributes to you know make things more difficult in certain areas, but. I mean, gosh, the list of people with ADHD who are highly successful in their fields grows every single day. Yeah. And, you know, I just I, that, that's not a coincidence when you're seeing all these different people, I think, because it, it the symptoms mm-hmm. of it lend itself to drive purpose, focusing creativity, in creativity, imagination, imagination yeah. all these different things. And when you're given the permission to think of it as a strength yep. rather than this baggage that you're carrying around, you then get to lean into like utilizing those skills rather than like being ashamed that they're there. Totally. And I, I, so I think you bring up a great point because it, it, it's a conversation. I know we've, we've talked about this and a, a lot, but it's it just keeps coming up yeah. in all of our conversations. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I agree. And, and deficit to me is just like the I mean, I hate both those terms. I don't think they're relevant. Deficit is kind of like just false. I mean, if you think about it, it's actually more like attention overload. Right. right. More than a deficit. Like yeah. you're able to, to focus on a lot of Obtain things. Obtain everything. Once, <laughs> which makes it hard to focus on one thing, but it's right. not really a deficit. If anything, it's like a wider scope. Um, yep. Which I think is what ha- allows people with ADHD often to be successful entrepreneurs and other things like that. Absolutely, because yeah. you can synthesize, you can be focused on yes. all these different things, and yeah. when you f- when you learn how to synthesize it into single focus, it's you're able to process like hundreds of things versus Correct. just like a single thing. Yeah, so and you might say that not having ADHD at times and really being kind of pigeonholed into singular focus is a bit of a deficit in in a lot of ways, especially mm-hmm. in the business world. Um, I think our in my opinion, our economy has kind of gotten to a place where it, it definitely rewards people who have the ability to think creatively and think outside the box and generate new ideas. 
um, especially with social media and things like that. And I think right. it's, it's, to me, there's never been a better time to be someone that has ADHD. Yep. I think it, it, uh, it really is kind of a superpower in, in different ways that we talk about. Yeah. Part four. Go ahead. Let it, lay it Man, on me, John. I feel like I need like a fan <laughs> therapy session, dude. Like, um, yeah. because if I'm putting the taking the therapist hat off, I'm really just taking the normal everyday person hat off, and just going into yeah. fan mode, which fan is short for fanatic. Okay, yeah. it, it means we're not logical, right? And we go a little bit out there, okay, with our allegiances and that kind and, and that kind of thing. Group think. Um, I am not logical when I'm a fan, and when I'm watching, <laughs> especially the NBA, I think the refs are absolutely terrible. Um, particularly towards the Celtics. I mean, I know I'm a homer, but my goodness, like I, I can't, I've watched NBA league pass this year. I've seen other games. I'm telling you the same stuff doesn't happen. I don't know what it is. What's, um, who's the guy, Daniel Tice. Yep. Okay. Have you seen his stats from after he got traded? Yeah. This dude was, anytime he breathes on someone <laughs> yeah. called for a foul on the Celtics, I think in his first three games, he wasn't called for a single foul yeah. on the Bulls. So if that doesn't prove there's a discrepancy here, I don't know what does. Yep. I'm venting too much. I'll give Talk you the down. I'm going to okay. give you the space. I'm okay. just going to give right. you the space. I, yeah. Get it out. I feel like, on the one hand, from a fan's perspective, it's like I don't have a whole lot of pity for refs because uh, mm-hmm. I think that they're they just need to get better at what they do. In my opinion, if I take that fan hat off, then I realize, like, especially reading this article, you recognize these are real people, and mm-hmm. it must be brutal, especially. It's I an think impossible job. Oh, totally. Especially from an NBA perspective, I think it's different. Like when you think of the size of the field with football and baseball, and even hockey, you got boards and plexi, and you can't hear anything. Mm-hmm. NBA is like there's courtside people. You are right there. Um, you have big stripes on your shirt. You, there's no hiding yourself. Mm-hmm. You are like bearing all for a lot of people that no matter what you do are going to hate you. That has to have a psychological impact. And, and it, that article, the the fourth part, really talks about some of these refs and what they go through. Uh, and it, it made me think a little bit differently um, mm-hmm. about my fan side. What do you think? Yeah, same. And I'm the same. When I, It's, you know, you always remember the bad calls. Mm-hmm. You never remember the fact that, like, for 60 or 58 minutes, they they called a good game, yeah. right? And so, and I think oftentimes, majority of the times, like, the loss or the win is placed on the calls of a referee, which mm-hmm. is just, you know, you can't, it, everybody's not perfect. Um, and now, you know, and then it's, it, you know, you you know, like, well, let's do more reviews and then like more, you know, instant replays oh, and stuff brutal. like that. And now, and they're then people are complaining about that and then yeah, they still get yeah, them wrong. Yeah, and it's yeah. like this, it's this impossible yeah. balance. But, um, yeah, I think that being a referee is an impossible job. Yeah. Impossible. Yeah. It's job. thankless. It's yeah. thankless. Yeah. You're never going to be like, that was such a great non-call or like, yeah. that was such a good call. Like you're, you don't, yeah. that you only are blowing your whistle when something is wrong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're never blowing your whistle being like great pass, yeah. right? Or exactly. anything like that. And so it's not, <laughs> it's, it's a really difficult position to be in. I think the NBA is difficult, um, because there's, you know, I, I have my own issues with, with referees, especially in the NBA, because there's a lot of like, if you miss a call, they're going to do like makeup calls later on. Totally. Soft. There's like this, there's, there's, they there's call the management. The, end of the game to, to make it right. look like less of a discrepancy. Yeah. yeah. And there's, so there's lots of stuff that, that goes into it. It's just like, well, just be, call a consistent game. You know, and if, if you're going to allow something on one end of the court, allow it for the other side. And I think that, of course, it's different for the Celtics, right? Yeah. Obviously, they're the harshest with the Celtics, and that's definitely not because I'm a Celtics fan. Uh, but that I just I'm looking for just consistency. Mm-hmm. Uh, but read like reading that it does it forces you to take that fan hat off and be like, oh yeah, this is an actual person who you watch the replays and they're just like somebody who's like seven feet tall, mm-hmm. massive in their face, screaming at them at the top of their lungs. Yeah you just sort of like write that off as like, oh, it's part of their job. But if I were in that same position and a 
big, massive person is screaming at me, that would be tough. And to have, and just once, let alone. Well, I, ha- I have a question times. for you on this one because I was so I was at the game recently. Um, you know, Celtics versus 76ers. Okay. Okay. Now you know where my the root. Okay, we're talking about the root of problems, right? <laughs> Not just the surface. The root of my fandom uh, anti-ref bias. Goes no further than Joel Embiid. Joel Embiid. Okay, he is like yep. at the crux of it. If you removed him, I don't even think I'd have an issue. But I have a, <laughs> ma- I have a major problem I have to figure out when it comes to my, yeah. my mood and my demeanor when it comes to seeing him play. I almost can't go. Yeah. It's that bad. Like yeah. I almost can't. I, if they face them in the playoffs, I might avoid those games. And watching <laughs> them on TV too, I, I yeah. just don't know if I can take it. I don't think my my mental health can actually take any more of that. Yeah. What confuses me, my, this is my question for you, is from a psychological perspective, it kind of fascinates me because Joel Embiid. If I was a ref, he'd be the guy who I'd be least likely to give to a call. Not just because I'm a, I'm a Celtics fan. Right. Just in terms of what he does. I mean, right. he even when he gets a call, he complains. Yeah. Goes right to the ref, complains. Kind of demeans them a little bit in passive-aggressive kind of way. And when he doesn't get a call, forget about it. I mean, it's like, you know, he pouts and he, you know, stomps and things like that. And yet he gets all these calls. And I, I don't think it's just a superstar thing. I don't know what it is because then you have other other guys that are kind of not on his level but are stars, right? Mm-hmm. And especially Tatum and, and uh, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. They're, you know, top 20, top 30 players in the league. And they're actually pretty low-key and mild-mannered. They don't – I mean, Tatum kind of throws his hands up after he gets him. But he's not like he's yeah. demonstrative. Mm-hmm. Um and they get no calls. And so I, I wonder, is that just a fluke or is it like what do you think from a psychological perspective – makes refs actually more likely a person give a person a player a call versus not yeah it's a good question um i have to give that one some thought i don't yeah. really know if they're it, I, I always sort of attribute the like if you're in the top 10 you're not you're gonna get calls if you're driving True. the lane LeBron's so like, gonna get calls lebron's gonna get yeah. calls Harden's gonna get calls yeah. westbrook all those guys they're gonna get calls because they're they're the elite giannis same thing so mm-hmm. or um Giannis. so um, but from a psychological standpoint, it'd be really interesting, like to do interviews or to do some like talk to referees about some of that to. stuff. It'd be really curious of like what in the moment where it was going through your head of giving that call versus not beforehand. Was there like a sense of like, oh shoot, I don't want to get yelled at and they'll give the call or or not? You would you would hope that it would not be a part of it, but everybody's human and I can't imagine we all have biases and I would be really, really fascinated to learn about that will never happen. I'm sure. Uh, I'm throwing our hats in the ring. Okay. Sure. Come on. Come on. Come on our show. If you're listening, um, What's the commissioner's name? Adam Silver. Yeah, if you're listening, Adam Silver. Uh, you know, we're willing. We're we are willing. available at any time. We're available okay? because there, it fascinates me. It really mm-hmm. does. And I think like one example that comes to mind is I, I think I referenced this in the past episode, but there was another uh, like a Malcolm Gladwell podcast where they talk about court judges and how they they are way more fierce with their sentencing right before lunch than compared to after lunch yeah. when you neutralize all the other variables because they're hungry. So it's yeah. like. There's there's something going on specifically with with all refs, but specifically with NBA refs that I feel like can be can be remedied, and mm-hmm. I think we should be considered. I really think we could now all in. I can't guarantee that. Well, no, my, my I can put my Celtics bias to the side if I have to because <laughs> I think it's worth it. It's that important of a thing. So yeah. hope, maybe we'll see. We'll I see. I doubt our door is going to be knocked on anytime soon. But, I doubt it. Um. So the other. So we covered parts three and part four. You know, we talked about part one. It's kind of like the the Kevin Love kind of the origin of mental health and, and the NBA in terms of where that topic started. I think it was mostly uh, DeMar DeRozan and Kevin Love. We obviously covered those in our first two episodes. We get You get into part two is about Marcus Morris, uh, the Morris twins really, twins, about yeah. growing up in, in North Philly. I went to architecture school in North Philly. It's a very, very rough area. And obviously they, you know, they speak to 
you know, the different things that are um, valued there and what it's life, what it's what life is like. And I think it it's kind of scary to read about. I mean, you recognize that, you know, clearly what came through is just this like individual and collective trauma that that mm-hmm. uh, especially in members of the black community, uh, particularly in in communities that are, you know, uh, a lot of the members of the community are living below the poverty line. It's it's brutal. I mean, it's like you don't feel safe walking out your front door and, you know, you clearly like making eye contact and things like to me, it takes the whole men's playbook to a different level, right? Yeah. We talk, I mean, all guys in general. Book. Yeah, it's like a, a, the, the way next level. Yeah. Like guys in general are are kind of taught like don't show emotion, don't show weakness. But in these communities, it is, it's not just like, hey, you're going to get made fun of. It's like, you know, you could be in danger if you do. Yeah. And I think we talked about this in the DeMar DeRozan episode too, but it really comes through and you recognize how how traumatic that is, uh, you know, in, in any given moment, but for their childhood. Mm-hmm. And it sets them up for a lot of mental health challenges later on. Yeah, yeah I agree. And they, they, they talked about how, like, you know, having that one thing, you had to protect it, you know, and they, with your life. Yeah. And, and really not meaning, like, not, not an exaggeration or mm-hmm. not a turn of phrase. Like, really, like, you had to, like, your life was dependent on, yeah. like, that one thing. And for them, it was basketball. And they had to, like, protect that yeah. with their lives because yeah. that was what the thing was going to be to help them get from where they were. And I think that their story is probably very similar to lots of people's story mm-hmm. in there who live in a situation that they do of, like, this is my ticket out of here. Yeah. Um, and I think we've talked about this in the past that a lot of times that what helps you in the moment get to where you want to get to doesn't always necessarily mean that that's what is going to help sustain. And especially afterwards, because I think a lot of times for these types of situations, it's like, okay, I, I don't focus on anything else other than basketball yeah. and getting me out of this situation. Yeah. And then when you're out of that situation, you don't need to live that life that, that way anymore. Mm-hmm. And you can start to sort of feel maybe a little bit safer. Um, and so it was cool to read the, the two experiences. Um, and Marcus, I believe was a little more outspoken about yeah. sort of some of the stuff that he would, that he had went through, especially as a kid. Um, but again, it was just it's 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 refreshing to hear those stories because, and Kevin Love talked about it with with Jackie Mack in their interview too of like, you know LeBron after the game coming up to him was like you helped so many people tonight mm-hmm. right and it, he was like I wasn't really what I was expecting yeah. but it, it same thing like another example of someone coming out and talking about some of this stuff to give permission to the next person or to the youth or maybe not even a pro player just anybody to give them permission to be like oh i'm not alone in this situation and there's 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 ways that i can get help and i think that 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 new pipeline yeah. is such a huge such a huge move forward and just hopeful that it can continue to kind of follow that trend yeah, specifically because, you know, he's a, a role model for anyone else who's grown up in a community like that yeah. and has gone through that type of experience. They can now, instead of looking around and seeing people that are telling them they, they aren't safe and they can't open up and they can't, right. they now have someone like Marcus Morris uh, who's opening up and, and ha- does come from that background. Mm-hmm. So that is very important, you know, for people to see, um, you know, yeah. like-minded people and people from similar backgrounds to, to be able to have as a role model and someone who can kind of show them that there's a different way to kind of handle things. Yeah, just representation. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, the other thing that came through is just that, you know, twins. I mean, twins being separated, I think obviously they, twins in general, but like they clearly relied on each other mm-hmm. uh, to keep themselves safe. To then have to go, we talked about adjustment in this past episode with Shamiko Holdsclaw, to have to go to, to a new life with more money in a different city, not knowing anybody, is hard enough. Then you get split up from your bro- your twin brother, who's like the, the main rock you have, that was clearly difficult for them. And then when they got traded back to reunited uh, on the Phoenix Suns, I think it obviously they both improved. They were both in a much better place, which I don't think is a coincidence. So Mm-mm. that definitely stands out. Um, so we've covered most of them. Part five was about 
uh, Trey Young, Kevin Love, and the future of mental health in the NBA. And I think they they talked about some cool things because they they referenced Trey Young went to school at Oklahoma, and they referenced that program mm-hmm. and um, you know how they have like a groundbreaking groundbreaking mental wellness platform for all of their incoming student athletes. Um, and that was really cool because I don't know that all colleges have that. I don't think they do. I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's going to set the tone for more colleges to do that, um, which is really needed because I think co- mental health in college, not just for for athletes, but also for students in general, is kind of an area that we're interested in because, it, you know, they charge a ton of money for tuition and yet they really don't provide um, a, a ton of support when it comes to the mental health side of things. Never has that been more important than during a pandemic and other stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, what do you think about that episode? Yeah, that and and to that point, I, I like that episode a lot. It was it was refreshing to hear, like, with that Oklahoma State is doing that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. I think you hear about like pro level teams when they're like importing like rookies and yep. their new like farm systems, especially in baseball. Like, they have those types of programs there, but that's at the pro level, right? And like what point zero one percent of people who make pros, especially mm-hmm. in baseball, so that that of that population, you're mm-hmm. only serving that amount of people. Um, so that was that was kind of nice to to hear that there's there's programs out there that are doing some of that some of that work yeah no absolutely and it kind of it kind of brings up the you know the difference between college and, and pro is obviously the money piece i mean we can get into the whole should college athletes be paid that's a whole we can cover mm-hmm. that some other time because that's a very uh long topic to cover but in the in part one you know danny ainge was actually quoted as saying like we can offer help but if they don't take it et cetera, et cetera. like not much we can do which th- there's truth to that but also it brings up the whole point of like do athletes trust that you know, these mm-hmm. teams are providing something that's confidential. And that confidentiality piece was something that kind of wove through a lot of these uh, parts with players saying, like, that has to be paramount because there were owners that said, like, we want access to those medical records, which is like a huge no-no when yeah. it comes to uh, mental health, but health in general. Um, and oh, no employer should really have access to that. So mm-hmm. um, so we're going to start shift this a little bit into the, you know, mental health and sports media. I mean, we've covered some of this already. Um, but in terms of, like, the things that, stand out to me and I'll, I'll kind of get it kicked off and then we'll kind of go back and forth a little bit just how far things have come since 2018 i mean i think i know we had talked in, um on on npr and we talked about in, in past episodes on how this there's probably a lot of different athletes that start you know had a had a role in the start of this stigma being reduced and mm-hmm. and it being more prevalent for athletes to come out we talked about like meta world peace in 2010 and uh you know brandon marshall in 2011 2018 was kind of like where it all seemed to kind of hit a break, you know, a tipping point, which is um, really awesome. This where DeMar DeRozan and Kevin Love kind of came out and talked about stuff. Clearly, Jackie Mack was integral in that. Um, so to me, it's like Jackie Mack is kind of in a past generation when it comes to like sports media, but still sort of like in both. I mean, she's, mm-hmm. she originated in the, in, the, in the 80s, but is still very much prevalent in, in sports media now. I feel like the new generation of sports media, you know, younger sports media members who grew up in, in a culture where mental health is more and more, you know, understood. I think that's like a kind of an area for them to utilize a little bit instead of being so clickbait driven. I think a lot, one of the major problems with media these days, which is why athletes especially take it upon themselves to be the, the drivers of their own kind of brand and, and platform media narrative. Yep. Um, one of the reasons they do that is because of how clickbait ish, uh, you know, media has become. So what do you think? I mean, I feel like that's uh, an area where the new generation could really utilize that to balance things out. Yeah, I think having it be more of a conversation and less so. I think that a lot of the older generation, you know, we've we've talked about Skip Bayless before and his his comments about Dak Prescott of like go out and play football and don't talk about your mm-hmm. whatever. Um, which obviously not great, uh, and he got pretty ridiculed by that uh, as he should have. Yeah. Um, and so 
I think it's a hard, I think it's a really hard balance. I think it's a balance that we try to do on this, on this show of like talking about people's mental health, but not speculating. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's a really hard thing to balance for a media person, but I think that having, well, we the, do this for a living right? So in terms of like the, the mental health side. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so for a sports media person, I think in terms of like their responsibility, I think it's just like anything else. It's just information that if the person has sort of talked about it for them to be able to sort of have a better understanding of what might be going on. And I think that really what could, they could do a better job is of like incorporating more of this stuff to like humanize the athletes mm-hmm. more. And mm-hmm. I think that we've talked about this a lot that from like a fan perspective, it's more enjoyable totally. if I'm watching yeah. like humans yeah. rather than like they are athletes. But if I, if I see them as human beings, it's more enjoyable. Yeah. Um, and I think from, well, a, and it's, it's real and it's authentic right. as opposed to like some headline that's clearly like when I see clickbaity headline, if like uh, it, to me, I lose respect for that that media person, that journalist, and yep. it makes me not want to really consume what they have to offer. Yep, I don't think it really helps their their brand or their kind no. of upper mobility either. No, definitely yeah. not. And a lot of the clickbait stuff, like you you you'll click it, and it has nothing to do with the actual <laughs> headline, or yeah. it's not accurate or true. Right. Well, like and sometimes it's... they don't choose the headlines, I guess. So I mean, yeah. still, I think like it's right. on the companies too. Yeah, I I agree. I think it's there's there's lots of different problems. I think that like the the goal would be this newer generation being able to like have more language around how to talk about these things if it's if it's present um but again like finding that balance of not going into speculating so if some if there's a player who has bipolar not being like that's why they had a bad game yeah, right yeah. and i think that that because that's not that's not that's super problematic um but well, having it be like understanding of uh, like i said like helping to humanize the person of like oh this person has this and that that that's going on for them yeah and that's it brings up a great question because it's like one of the things i wanted to ask you today was like should it be the responsibility of sports mm. media to understand mental health nuance and that's a tough one i don't what do you yeah. think I, I, it, I struggle with it because yeah. i think I, I think that they're in terms of like what they're responsible for doing, mm-hmm. I think it's if you're being a good journalist and you're talking about an athlete, you should do your research and it should be maybe a part of what's going on. But then on the other hand, it's like that's confidential information for the person who might not – if they haven't spoken up about it, then obviously you can't you know talk about those things. But I think that having an understanding of it would be really helpful so that you don't get into situations like Skip Bayless was in when he was – when Dak Prescott was talking about suicide and talking about like sadness and like all these different things and for him to make a, a comment about like just go play football. Yeah. Um, you know, that is not a helpful conversation for anybody. Um, it stops the conversation yeah, from trying yeah. to be had. It stigmatizes, it belittles, it degrades. And so, you know, I think helping give maybe sports media a more understanding of like if those things come up how to talk about them, like giving them language might be, might be mm-hmm. something that I do think that's part of their responsibility. I don't think it's like, Oh, I don't know how to do it. So I'm just not going to do it. Like I know, I think it's your responsibility to educate yourself on how to, if it comes up. Well, th- I agree. And I think so. I, I, I think it's, I think they should try to get educated. So they have yeah. some balance, right. So they're informed while also like us, you know, recognizing collectively that it's not, uh, it's not on them to become licensed mental health professionals. No, of course not. Right. Um, and, and, you know, I think media members in general are, are you know, always going to be at risk to, to um, you know, be prone to a little bit of negativity and a yeah. little bit of sensationalizing. I think it kind of goes with the field. So I think as, as fans and as consumers, we kind of have to at least allow for a little bit of that just because that's what drives that sort of yeah. market, uh, mm-hmm. that field. And it's always going to be that way. Yeah. I think if we get too up in arms about like, you know, them fixating on one element or, or you know, that without understanding that it's kind of like on us to, to you know, be realistic a little bit. I agree. Um, so what I think might help is like, you know, sometimes they call in 
I've seen them call it what you know whether it's on on Twitter them featuring kind of like medical doctors that can kind of give some perspective of an injury that was t- that, yeah. that took place on the field what it means for their recovery how long that might take why not do that with mental health I mean I've never seen that when it comes to so mm-hmm. they don't have to know all this stuff but you know these shows and these especially the producers should bring in I'll throw our head in the ring if they want yeah. to, if they need it I'll happy do it to, you know happy to. bring in some mental health professionals I mean it doesn't have to be us obviously it could be I think these like really high-level psychologists that have clearly connected with these athletes that are referenced like yeah why not feature some of them and bring them in on when it comes to a topic so that it's not a it's not on the sports per- media personalities to know all this stuff because yeah. that you look you can't be an expert in everything if you're no. an expert as a sports media um you know analyst that's what your that's what your area is like it's right. unfair of us to expect them to be experts in mental health right so Take some pressure off them. Bring in a mental health expert to just discuss this from a certain angle to mm-hmm. give it some balance. And then I feel like it also is good for the the producers and the company because it, it will take the edge off the, the tendency to go way too in the direction of sensationalism and things like that. Yeah. Everybody wins. I mean, like it, it balances all the negative stuff that will get you like – I mean, Skip Bayless got torn apart after torn that apart. last one, which it shows how things have shifted. Yeah. And I think – you know, sports media companies and, and producers need to pay attention to that because if they're not, I think it's going to cost them viewers if they're not careful. So it really doesn't mm-hmm. – there's no downside to bringing that in. Like you said, it also makes it, – it endears the athlete to the viewer. Why wouldn't you want to do that? Right. You get on their level more. It makes you feel more connected mm-hmm. um, as a fan. So Yeah, it protects the analysts too like from making comments like Skip yes. did. You know? yeah. yeah. Or if they do, I, a mental health professional will be really good at – not jumping down the throat of someone like Skip Bayless, they probably provide some context, right? Um, you know, although some, it's hard to know with guys like Skip because sometimes they know exactly what they're doing. I didn't get the vibe with this one. I feel like he, he's just kind of ignorant when it comes to mental health, yeah, generational kind of thing. Yeah, I agree. Um, but sometimes they they know exactly what they're doing, and they that's why they get they paid know. because yeah. it's it's designed to get again clicks and shares and that, even if it's negative. So yep. Um, Tune into Felger and Mazga at any point. You'll know what we're talking about. For anyone about. local, yeah, yes, anyone local. That's, that goes like just a whole degree <laughs> about like just placating to people's prone proneness to be negative. My yeah. goodness. Uh, yeah. Never said a positive thing in their entire <laughs> careers. Um, so obviously there's some members of the media that are more negative. I think Skip Bayless, Stephen A. sometimes is a little bit maybe misinformed about mental health and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, some good ones. I think Mina Kimes is someone that definitely – um, really seems to understand the, the mental health angle and how that relates to, to people and athletes and, and the fan experience too. Uh, Jackie Mack, yeah. uh, Darren Ravel is someone who's been involved with Same Here, which you know we're big on that organization. So they're doing a podcast now with mm-hmm. Theo Fleury, um, and that kind of ties in, you know, athletes, mental health, mental health awareness, that kind of stuff. Yeah, Brandon Marshall too. Brandon, Mar- great one. Yeah, yeah. he's also a former athlete, uh, as mm-hmm. is uh, Theo Fleury, I think. So. Yep. For sure. So there's definitely some some really good ones that are doing some great stuff now. We don't want to just, again, we don't want to focus just on the negative. We want to focus on the positive, too. Yeah. And I think it's shifting in the right direction. And sometimes these things just don't, as much as we want them to change on a dime, like cultural shifts don't change like that. It, mm-hmm. It's incremental. And all we can do is try to balance the discussion and the narrative so that it changes in the right uh, at the right pace. Um, so I think that's it for today. Uh, so normally we ask people to subscribe to YouTube, but... Uh, Guess what, Dimitri? We don't have to do that anymore. Uh, just kidding. You should still subscribe. Still subscribe. But we do have 100, so we're getting our custom URL. But I guess we could also, you know, if you want to find me, I'm on Twitter. I have like a whopping 30 followers. Jump. Okay. But Careful. one of them is Bob Oaks from, from WBUR. There I'm you very go. proud of that. There right? you go. Um, yep. I, I did thank him. We had a little back and forth. No big deal. <laughs> um, so you can find me on Twitter at Jotham, L-I-C-S-W. I'm also on Instagram at Jotham Busfield. 
Um, John, anything, any place people can reach you about the book or anything like that? Yeah, John B. Cuna um, for on Instagram, um, and then you can follow our just our Riser and Tread um, Instagram tag too for all any updates or pieces like that that we're doing. Absolutely. So, thanks everyone for for listening to this episode of the Grim Drive Podcast uh, for our discussion about Jackie McMullen and mental health and sports media. We will be back next week to talk about Julie and Jack Ertz and relationships.